This is Beyond the Couch with Bridges, a podcast at the intersection of Asian Pacific Islander, South Asian American identity and mental health. I'm Christy. I'm Sam. And I'm Diana. We are three therapists who got together in the hopes of demystifying therapy and uplifting stories from our community. Each week, we'll connect with fellow therapists, experts, and community members about life, identity, and healing. We're so glad you're joining us today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the Couch with Bridges. I'm Christy. I'm Diana. And I'm Sam. And I've had the idea about talking about our relationship with languages, because I think I've talked about my relationship with the Korean language in past episodes and there being some grief and not always knowing or not having a lot of skill with the language, but I've been thinking about it more because I started taking a Korean class this summer. So I was curious how we all relate to languages and how that relates to our identities and even just the way I we think. It's been really interesting to see different parts of the language and just revisit it in a different way. I'm curious too to hear about this conversation because I'm mindful that we each, our families each have sort of a different generational history of how long they've lived in the United States. So yeah. I, I have some inklings about who maybe is connected the most slash the least, which the least is probably <laughs> me, <laughs> to the language from where their, you know, their ethnic or their ancestors came from, which would for me would be Japan, um, which I speak pretty much no Japanese. <laughs> I'm fourth generation. So it was my great grandparents that came to the United States. And so my mom, no one in her family can speak any Japanese. None of my grandparents or great aunts and uncles could, although my grandpa learned um, when he enlisted in the army during World War II, he learned Japanese. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting thing. And my great grandparents, actually, none of them spoke English. So there was this weird dynamic where somehow the family was still able to communicate. They could understand Japanese but couldn't speak it and would speak in English. And then my grandparent, great grandparents must have been able to understand English, but couldn't speak it and would respond in Japanese, um, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Wow. He So he learned Japanese in the army? Yeah, it's, it's a bit complicated. But um, during Japanese American internment, if you enlisted in the army, you could leave the camps. So a lot of people, I mean, this, the camps were so awful. So they would enlist so they could leave. And then you would get the benefits of being on the GI Bill and everything. Um, and so he enlisted. And since he had sort of an understanding of Japanese language, they took a lot of the Japanese interned people who enlisted and taught them Japanese lessons so that they could interrogate Japanese prisoners. Uh, so it's pretty dark, mm. but that was how he learned. And I think that he was grateful for the experience because he went back to Japan a number of times. And I think he really appreciated that he could communicate with the people living there. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, that yeah. adds a lot of dimension to the reasons why we learn. Mm -hmm. um, Diana, you were alluding to that before we started recording. Yeah, yeah. And even just like all the conflict that you're trying to not think about because you're also learning a language and you're focused on a task. But yeah, actually, it made me think about my own family, too, because my family is from Taiwan. Um, which was occupied by Japan up until um, after World War II when the Chinese came. So my grandfather actually served in the Japanese army because um, it was just, you know, military mm -hmm. service during the time of Taiwan being under Japan's power. 
And my grandparents' generation grew up speaking Japanese in schools because that was the, you know, the, the main language in Taiwan at the time, as well as Taiwanese as the home language, um, the dialect that, you know, came from the province in China. So um, a lot of the people that had arrived in Taiwan from China over many centuries came from this one region. And so that was one of the local languages that my family spoke at home. Um, and then my grandparents spoke Japanese growing up in schools. And then during my parents' generation, um, the power had switched to the Chinese. And so they grew up speaking Chinese in schools and spoke Taiwanese at home still. And then my parents moved to the United States. And so I grew up speaking Taiwanese at home um, initially. And you know how it goes when you're in a different culture than English um, became like more dominant in the home. Um, but a lot of times it's really just a mix of Taiwanese and English at home, which, you know, going back to the complexity of all this, it's like, who actually understands what we speak at home? Mm. Only we do, because I could go to Taiwan and we'll be in a taxi speaking all together. And the taxi drivers, what are you talking about? It's like every five words, one word or two words is Taiwanese and maybe Chinese here and there. And then the rest is English. Um, and then, in the United States, nobody understands us really either because it's like we have this um, mix of words that we have learned together as a family. And I think going back to what you started with, Christy, like you said grief at some point. Um, and I think there's something that is lost, right, in not being able to fully communicate in a language. And even though we have cobbled together this way of, of talking together, it is not at you know, at a fully descriptive level. So I think like we've had to make do with the level of vocabulary that we all know in these different languages. Mm. Such an interesting point too, Diana, about, yeah, how language is so reflective of the geopolitics of what is going on in the country at the time. I, you know, a number of people in my life who are Korean American shared similar things when Japan was occupying Korea multiple times throughout history. Their grandparents speaking Japanese, their parents may be speaking a little and not necessarily anymore. It's very complicated. Yeah. My my grandparents on both sides were given like Japanese names and they were in when they were in Korea and had to speak Japanese at school and would get in trouble if they spoke in Korean. So sometimes even now my grandma recognizes different Japanese phrases or knows how to count in Japanese. She probably knows more than she's expressed, but um, it's interesting because she gets a little excited now, like that she knows this other language or has this mm -hmm. other implicit knowledge. But it's also interesting because in my mind, I, I'm imagining a, a really young version of her having learned this language at the time. I'm kind of struck. It's very interesting because, you know, I'm only half Japanese, but my mom and her family, they're all 100%. And your families can speak more Japanese than my family can, which is just kind of an interesting thing to kind of contend with. And hmm. similarly about the grief piece, you know, I was in Japan recently and I thought a lot about the language. I tried to learn a little bit before I went, but I'm just not disciplined about that kind of stuff. It's challenging for me. And and I do feel like there is a little bit of a loss. I think also being biracial, it feels very related to feeling connected, but disconnected at the same time to this place that 
technically your family is from and yet has been in another country for so long that they're just sort of little remnants of traditions and like certain words that would be subbed. Like my family, we always said shoyu instead of soy sauce, which is the Japanese word and things that you don't necessarily realize, I think until you get a little bit older and you realize that you've been sort of using this replacement phrase, but it's just little almost like whispers and traces over time of it still sort of culturally being a part of my family. It's interesting. Sam, I'm curious, like now when you use these words with your family, what does it bring up for you? I think now, I I mean, I've done a lot of work around my identity over the years. I think that was sort of for a long time, especially when I was a teenager, which this is influenced by a lot of factors. It was like probably like my core wound feeling disconnected from myself and where I came from, but also just everybody. I don't know how else to explain it. That now with all the work that I've done, I can see it as something that actually feels like very tender, that I feel like it's this nice sort of connective string from where I came from. But at the same time, I think there is still some sadness and, you know, the part of me that I feel like wishes I could learn Japanese, that feels like that would be a really meaningful experience for me, which feels relevant, Christy, because I know you mentioned earlier that you've been taking Korean lessons, which I think is so cool. Yeah, I, I took a semester of like beginner level one in college of Korean and I, I learned a lot and then I lost a lot since then. So I've started taking another like level one beginner class this summer. And it's weird. I was writing down like how I was feeling during or how I've been feeling during the class because I think I'm one of three people who might have some Korean heritage in the class. But for the other two, there are different reasons why they're disconnected from the language. For me, it sometimes feels like a little impostery and a little bit of shame sometimes when like someone else who loves K-dramas can speak a sentence much more easily than I do. And it also brings up like, oh, I should be watching more Korean media and like just be immersing myself more. But one of the reasons that I really wanted to, I've always wanted to take another lesson, but what prompted me also this summer was we were having a family weekend for my grandmother's birthday and a bunch of her siblings were coming in town as well. And they might all be able to speak little bits of English, but I wanted to just even have the chance of remembering or taking more in from them. And it's still it's still pretty tragic, you know, because I can get the gist of what most of my family was saying. But when they're looking right at you and saying these things and especially anticipating that we might not see each other often after this visit, it's I wish I could understand every word. And then I'm so reliant on whichever other family member can translate. Mm-hmm in that moment. But if I, if I don't have someone there, then I'm just kind of feeling their tone or feeling how their expression matches up. But it, yeah, just, it's tough to see them wish to express something across generations. And sometimes I understand, but sometimes it's just like a nod. One thing I'm noticing talking about this is that it feels like, and I imagine maybe this is the experience for like a lot of third culture kids or people who, you know, if you're just living in a country where relatives or family members have immigrated here, how tied language also feels to like these generational divides, like what you were speaking to Christy of sort of these older family members who you want to connect with and be able to hear their stories and maybe know you're not going to have the opportunity to see that often. 
and also like just the the barrier that might be, but also I imagine the connective thread when it feels like you can understand something that they're saying, or you can sort of intonate what they mean. Um, it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. And it makes a difference being physically with people. They can, we can hold hands, you know, or we can just sit near each other. So the language is a little, it's um, not the only thing to connect, but that's also rare in itself just to like physically be close to family, for example. And this also just makes me think about how East Asian cultures tend to have a more implicit style anyway with communicating. And so language is just one part of the difficulty in really connecting across generations, especially broken by immigration. Even if you could speak fluently, there's going to be some sort of disconnection because certain things are just going to be impossible to talk about or will be talked about differently, right? Yeah, as I'm doing the class, I'm wondering, okay, am I going to sign up for the next level? You know, am I going to continue this or take a little bit of a break? Because it is a totally different muscle to exercise. But as I've been doing this, I've heard other people like, oh, I tried Korean. It was just too hard for me to learn, you know, or I've heard I, I went to another like AAPI mental health event recently. And someone on the panel was talking about trying to have their children learn Chinese, but it was just too hard you know, for everyone, Mm -hmm. the whole family to balance all the classes, how much the kids dreaded it, all these things. And like learning a language, it takes so much investment and energy. And as much as I want to learn it, it's tricky of, am I going to just ride this wave and momentum and then fully grasp the language even to level two, you know, or like how sustainable is it? Is it more helpful when I'm around my family and then I learn it so much more quickly Hmm. yeah it kind of feels like this ongoing relationship to the language and as much as I can give myself access to develop the skill I also then think further in the future like how would it feel to pass on the language if I only have a really like elementary understanding of it it's hard I just had a thought as you were talking about your language learning experience because I'm also learning a language now but it's Spanish, which has no tie to my culture. And I was just thinking about how I almost feel like it's a bit easier for me to just focus on learning the language because I am totally trying to immerse myself living in Spain, taking language classes four hours a day, five days a week. But I'm just doing the language learning because it's not as loaded because it's not a language of connection to any, there's no other reason I'm doing it except just to learn it. Um, And I don't know if that is going to lower the stakes for me so that I can just learn the language without holding myself to any sort of expectation to like, Mm -hmm. if I don't learn this, it'll mean that I won't, I'm going to lose that connection I have with my culture, with my family. If I don't know it perfectly, it means this about me. That's really interesting, Diana. I'd be curious to hear, maybe we can check back in on that because I do, as soon as you said that, I do feel like there is a lot of pressure or meaning around what it means to be able to speak the language of your family members or your ancestors. You know, I'm thinking of a person that I know who she shared that it's, it feels like a big deal that she's really proficient in Chinese when some of her other family members aren't. And it's like part of being considered like a good child or a good family member. And what does that feel like then for the other people in the family where maybe they just can't grasp it as easily, or 
I don't know, maybe they were like exposed to less family members who were speaking it fluently around them. Maybe they were just around more English speakers for whatever reason. And I, it can be very, very loaded and very fraught, I think, for a lot of people. Like another way for us to judge ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to feel bad about ourselves. And it's so hard when you're balancing these multiple identities or roles in all these different spaces. And I think often feeling holds and like, are you more American? Are you more from whatever country your families came from? And I think I relate to this a lot just as a biracial person, because people all the time would ask me, do you feel more Japanese or Jewish as if it's like a choice rather than feeling that you can just identify with both and feel like you can be both things at the same time? Or if that's the only two identities that you have too, right? Yeah, exactly. That it's like all based on your race or ethnicity, which is honestly a a small fraction of probably so many of the ways or complexities of how people see or define themselves in life. Did language or phrases come up on your dad's side, on your Jewish side? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so I went to Hebrew school. I had a full bat mitzvah. I can speak more Yiddish and Hebrew than I can Japanese, but it's because my dad is fluent in Hebrew and Yiddish and I went to like a formalized kind of schooling where they taught me this. There's a part of me that feels a little bit envious of some people that I know who, you know, their mom was from Japan. And so she put them in Japanese school. And so they can speak Japanese and they can, you know, they feel more connected to the culture because that just wasn't available near me. And, you know, my mom is so Americanized that I don't think that she really felt like it was that important and not to blame her because it's not on her at all, but it's just sort of, yeah, like a little bit of a longing for something like that. It's interesting that I feel more sort of able to communicate in that space than I do in this other one, which is often the way that I'm more identified by outside people. Like just because of the way that I look, I'm often more experienced as being non-white or Asian than I am as Jewish, but I don't know. Yeah, that's also interesting, even like learning via school, um, Mm -hmm. growing up versus learning because it's spoken in the home. I'm curious, as I'm learning Korean, I'm seeing different patterns across Korean culture. For example, when I was learning some Korean quilting called pojagi, there's ways where the pieces, the scraps of fabric are paired together in ways that match. And it's kind of like if you have a rectangle or a square, you match the sides that align together and then you match that longer seam to another piece that matches that. And as I was revisiting the written language of Korean, there's a similar kind of pairing between vowels and consonants, how they're matched up. And to see that kind of through line through art and the writing system. And it also kind of suggests how Korean culture, it's pretty simple a lot of things are based on like the five elements a kind of like simplicity and elegance to a lot of different parts of their culture so it's kind of getting access to that but I'm also curious as you all have talked about even Diana as you're learning Spanish and Sam as you've related to the two languages growing up if there's any of the mindset or the culture of of how they think that Mm -hmm. has impacted you that is such a good question. And I feel like I don't know enough to, to be able to speak to it accurately. But I imagine there's got to be some connection there because they've done a lot of research about how language does impact how we think. It's not necessarily that how we think affects languages. Mm. I think Steven Pinker's, I believe the book is called Word for Thoughts or School of Thought or something like that. He wrote a book about it. That was really interesting. Hmm. Diana, maybe you maybe you can speak to this one a little bit more. Yeah, I was just thinking, well, as I was telling you before, it's been four weeks of like, just 
being overwhelmed every day by like hundreds of new words. I just started using this uh, website that I'm sure most students have used now. It's called Anki. Basically, it's an online flashcard system. And I think I just spent all weekend inputting every single new word that I've learned. And it was like a thousand something. So <sighs> I feel like I have not absorbed or uh, <laughs> hung on to anything long enough to notice anything yet. But yeah, I know what you're saying, though, because even in Taiwanese and Chinese, there are certain things in there that like when I learned, I'm like, oh, haha, that's funny to think that this is the way they say that. But at the moment, I can't think of any examples. Um, also, I think my mind has just like pushed everything else out. I'm like, okay, I'm only <laughs> Spanish. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there, we're learning a lot of expressions, too. And those are always fun because definitely... God plays into a lot of the expressions we've learned recently. Ah, oh, um, see, yeah, that makes sense. Religion. Yeah. Religion, yeah. Baked into the language. And like certain words are Arabic because there was a big period in Spanish history where that was predominant. And so there's mm. like, you know, the roots of certain words and how to remember them. There's certain ways to learn it. But at the moment, I'm really just not aware of it. <laughs> I have a little funny anecdote that maybe some folks, if if any of you have family members or you yourself have grown up in a really ethnically and nationally diverse place, my dad always tells this story about how his grandfather, who mostly just spoke Yiddish, he, he didn't speak a lot of English, but he would curse in Italian because they lived in the Bronx and it was like a very kind of mixed Jewish, Irish, Italian neighborhood. And my dad asked him why one time. And he said, it's because in Yiddish, the curse is essentially saying, stick your head in the ground like a potato, which is very <laughs> Polish and like a very kind of Yiddish. You can imagine like on the shtetls and stuff that that was felt very close to their life. And he said, when you curse in Italian, it just sounds better. And it's got like more of a punch. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we'll start to wrap up for today. But yeah, there's so many different threads across languages. And it's interesting how we're all having some different relationship to it. Yeah, I think we should come back to this topic. I think and so just, too. Mm -hmm. As we were talking about it, I was just thinking like, I wonder if there, there's no three, there's no white therapists sitting and talking about this topic, I bet. Mm. Because this is yeah, just one of those things that affects anybody who is an immigrant of some kind, right? Or especially mm -hmm. a person of color in a place where the majority is something else, right? It's like something that is common to all of us, this feeling of being disconnected or not having the words to mm -hmm. really connect to, really know our cultures. And you guys yeah. have inspired me to, I think I'm, I think I'm going to try to practice a little bit again and pick it up because <laughs> I did have an experience when I was in Japan and I was able to say like a few rudimentary phrases of people asking me, oh, are you Japanese? And me feeling, it felt very meaningful. And I felt very seen in that moment because so much of my sort of personal struggle has been around navigating my identity and feeling like Asian enough, Japanese enough, whatever that means, that there was something very meaningful about that experience to me that now I feel like I, I can do it. You guys are inspiring me to try again. <laughs> That's great. It is quite empowering, actually, even mm -hmm. if it feels slow. Mm -hmm. Well, it's lovely to chat with you both today. Let's continue the conversation like you mentioned. But for now, we'll talk to you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Couch. Tune in every Wednesday, rate or review us to help grow our community and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We'd love to hear from you. So connect with us on Instagram at Bridges Mental Health. (laughs) (laughs) Thank <laughs> <laughs> you.